Let's pray. Thank you, Lord God, for the opportunity now to look into your word. And as we study these passages and as we study these characters that we're going to be seeing in your word, we ask that you would give us the the lessons that you want us to learn from them. We know that nothing is in Scripture without a purpose, and so we ask that you'd help us to to see, to understand, and and to be able to draw lessons from the, the life of Saul. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Um, just so that you're aware, for the next little while, we are going to be going through various places in Samuel, First Kings and Second, or Samuel Kings and Chronicles, just picking out some of the highlights of some of the kings and the lessons that we can learn. So, if you would just kind of keep that in mind, I'll try to make sure that ahead of time I give you some of the passages, maybe that you can read the week before. Um, it's more of a narrative, but, but the, these people are in the Scripture for a reason. There are things that people did in the Old Testament that we are not supposed to do. And there are many things that they did that we are supposed to learn from and be willing to learn and do ourselves. So that's where we're headed for the next few weeks. We're starting with Israel's first king, King Saul. I remember a, few week, uh, a number of years ago I talked to a man who had been a linebacker at Notre Dame University for four years as a starter and um, he was invited to one of the NFL training camps to try out for the team and he went and uh, he went excited and full of hope I mean they chose him to come they called him they they said come we want to have you work out and he said it was a lot of work I mean he worked really hard for every single day and um, he got all the way to the last day of training camp and he thought wow I made it how cool is this and that's when they came and they cut him from the team he went two more times two different more years two more years to other teams and the same thing happened went full of hope went full of expectation thinking okay they've chosen me to come there's a reason for this and in each case just before the end of training camp he was rejected and he did not was not able to to continue to play that whole idea of being chosen is something kind of interesting and special. And then the idea of being rejected is even stronger and harder. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to just kind of piece some things together historically um, from Israel's past. Go ahead and put that chart up there, Daryl. I'm going to be kind of talking through this as we get to the point where we start. But um, God came to Abraham and said, I want you to leave your land. I want you to go to the land I'm going to take you to. And I promise you that I'm going to make you into a great into a great nation. I'm going to make your name great. I'll bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. All the people of the earth will be blessed through you. And that's in Genesis 12 where he gets those promises. And so Isaac and Jacob also are given those same promises. And then also the 12, including and, you know, those are called the big four, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And then, of course, they had the time frame where they went into <clears throat> Egypt, and they went into exile, or not exile, but into slavery. So they have 400 years in Egypt, and then God calls Moses, and there's an exodus, and he brings them out with displays of amazing power. And then there's Joshua, who takes the people from the exodus, getting into the border, and Moses, at that point, passed away. Joshua takes them into the land, oversees the conquest of the land, the settling of the tribes. And after Joshua dies, then you've got the period of the judges, one of the darker times in Israel's history. And um, 
in Judges, starting at, and then Judges goes on into the Kings. And, and just so you get a sense of the, the transition, the book of 1 Samuel is a transition book. It takes the people of Israel from loose tribal groupings who are ruled over by elders of the tribe or judges to a time of a king. That's the part that happens in First Samuel, just so you're aware of that. Now, just to kind of put it all back together again, Judges 2, chapter verse 10. This is now speaking about the generation um, after Joshua and those people from that generation had passed. And it says... After that generation died, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge or didn't know the Lord or remember the mighty things that he had done. And that's when the cycle of the judges begins. And you remember the cycle. You know, they, they turned away from God. God brings in a nation to oppress them. The people cry out to God eventually. God brings in a, uh, a judge or, or a prophet and, and, and they repent and turn back to God. And for a time period, they're okay. And then it happens again. This downward, big downward spiral all through the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, you also see this theme running through, which prepares us for 1 Samuel. Uh, Judges 17.6. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And then chapter 18, there was no king. Chapter 19, there was no king. Last verse in the book, Judges 21.25. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. And so as we get into Samuel, we begin to see, okay, Samuel is one of the last, there's the last of the judges, and he's judging over the nation. If you remember, Samuel's sons, he kind of raised them and wanted them to help, help with the, with the whole idea of judging the nation, but they turned out to be wicked men. And so, People ask for a king. king, Having a king would do two things. And they're thinking, having a king would hold them accountable for obeying God's law. And that's what good kings did. Good kings led the nation in saying, we must worship the Lord God. We will not go into battle without God showing us that's what we should do all the way along. You will find all the good kings that you find in the scripture are all people who pursued God. And help the nation to pursue God. The wicked kings took the people away from God. So this was one of the things they were thinking. A king would do this. Second thing they were hoping for was that the king would lead the tribes of Israel and, and join them together to fight against their enemies. Now, up until now, there had been maybe some tribes that would join together occasionally. But you had 12 tribes scattered all over. And, and to call up all of the men to come and serve, you needed a king to bring the army together and to cause the army to to pursue. So again, just so that you're aware, this is a transitional book. Let's go ahead and put that quote up there. Israel's in a transition from a group of tribes ruled by judges to a unified kingdom ruled by King David, and that's the book of 1 Samuel. This is where we were, and this is where we're going. This is where we're going to end up. So as you're reading through First Samuel, understand that that's what's going on. Now just kind of a very, very quick implication here. Have you ever felt that you were stuck doing the same thing over and over and over? That this was something you, you didn't want to do even, and yet somehow you were always back. And you were longing for God to deliver you from this thing that keeps coming back.
Philippians 1 6 reminds us that God is, God will continue the work He has started in us. Uh, He saved us and He'll continue that work. But when someone, anyone is in some kind of a situation where there's just this sin that keeps coming back, there's, there's shame in that. I mean, nobody, nobody else may even know about it, but there's shame. And we need to remember when we are full of shame and guilt that God forgives. It's a really important thing. The people of Israel had to deal with that whole idea of that shame because of their sin. Eventually they, they, they got to that point and then they sought forgiveness. And for us, First John 1 9 is so critical. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Another thing that's important for us to know, and I'm <clears throat> really sorry about my voice. I lost it this week somewhere. I couldn't find it. <coughs> anyway, it is also always good to remember that God, that we are in Christ. Look at Hebrews 10:14. I love this verse. It's so so critically important for us to think through. By one sacrifice, that's the death of Christ on the cross, He has made perfect forever. Past tense. Those who come to Christ and believe. At that moment that they believe, they are made perfect because we are in 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 Christ and, and God sees Christ and sees the forgiveness, doesn't see the sins. So we are made perfect forever. So by one sacrifice, He has made perfect forever those who are ongoing being made holy. And that's where our struggle is, isn't it? As Christians and as believers, if we understand, okay, I am in Christ and I'm perfect before God, why am I struggling with this? Well, that's the process. That's the ongoing growth. That's the ongoing sanctification that takes place. And that's something that we constantly go back to. That's why we confess and we are restored and we continue to grow. So if there's something, let me just put this picture up there real quick. Where are they going? Yeah, that's pretty much it. Nowhere. Um, I think for me, one of the things that I've struggled with as I've had something maybe that I needed to have some kind of victory over is to get in line with what God is doing. Many times we find ourselves doing the opposite, perhaps, of what God wants. And if we really want to grow spiritual, we can say, okay, Lord, in what directions are you taking me? How can I have victory over this? And then we get in line with Him, and we walk with Him in that direction. We don't have this two people going opposite directions. So one of the things we can do is to make sure we are asking and praying and saying, God, show me how I can be in sync with you, how I can be uh, surrendered in such a way that I'm walking with you, not trying to get away. So Israel has asked for a king. And in chapter 12, we have Samuel's farewell to the nation as he's kind of going to be fading away. His influence will be diminishing. And so here we go. In verse 12, he says, uh, you know what? When you were afraid, the king of Ammon came. You said you wanted a king to reign over you. And even though the Lord God is your king, that's what you wanted. And so here is the king you've chosen. There's a whole process that happened where Saul became king. And it's interesting because there's a warning that he gives at that point. He said, you wanted a human king and not the divine king. And, and on some level, I can understand why they would want one person to kind of unify the nation, unify the, the, the armed forces. But he says this in verse 14. If you fear the Lord and worship the Lord and listen to his voice, 
And if you do not rebel against the Lord's commands, then both you and your king will show that you recognize the Lord as, is your God. And so he's saying, listen, you guys, God has said, go ahead, you can have a human king. But never forget, God is the point of all of this. Never forget that God is king. And so you need to fear the Lord, serve and worship the Lord, obey the Lord. Those, those are the things you need to continue doing, whether you have a human king or not. You need to be pursuing God. And if the king is pursuing God and the people are seeking after God, then you're going to be just fine. God will bless the nation of Israel. And then he says, but if, verse 15, if you rebel against the Lord and his commands, you refuse to listen to him, you refuse to do the things that he asks you to do, his hand will be heavy against you. Stop and think of those words. He's speaking to the nation of Israel here, and he's saying, you know what, if you choose not to honor God, choose not to follow God, and God has given you the ability to make that choice, but if that's what you do, his hand will be against you. The God of the universe will be against you. It's a powerful, powerful thing. At that point, Samuel prayed, and God did some signs and some wonders, and and the people were very, very frightened at that point. And then in verse 20, he says, Don't be afraid. Um, You have certainly done wrong, but make sure now that you worship the Lord with all your heart. That's where you need to get to. Worship God with all your heart. Don't turn back on Him. Don't go back to worshiping worthless idols. And I think I've mentioned before, many times people have these little household gods. Little gods about that size, made out of stone or gold or some other precious metal. And, and he's saying, why would you go back to those worthless things when you've got the God of the universe? So he's saying, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. And then verse 23 really struck me. As for me, as for me, I will certainly not sin against the Lord by ending my prayers for you. I will continue to teach you what is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and faithfully serve Him. And he he goes on, if you don't do that, he says in verse 25, if you continue to sin, you don't pursue God, you and your king will be swept away. Just gone. But I love the fact he says, I will keep praying for you. I will continue to teach you. And if you continue to sin, then God will wipe you away. There's some implications here that really struck me. Verse 23, where he says to the nation, and this is a man who's led them spiritually. This is a man who's been the one who's been there. Everybody would take their problems to Elijah. and or to, I keep saying Elijah, it's Samuel. So if you hear Elijah in your mind, just translate it. Um, it's, Elijah's not in the passage. <laughs> this is Samuel. Um, so as for me, I will certainly not sin against the Lord by ending my prayers for you. Now, I've learned down through the years, if you ever want to make a whole bunch of people feel guilty, just start talking about prayer. Uh, doesn't matter how you talk about it or what you say about it. Uh, many times people feel like, oh man, I should be praying more, and, and so guilt sets in. I'm not trying to do that here this morning. In fact, as I share these thoughts, please understand that I'm hit by these words. When, when, when Samuel says, I will not sin by ceasing to pray. 
That's a heavy statement. And so I'm, I'm just thinking through. I remember as a, as a young person, I read a lot of missionary biographies. I read one called Praying Hyde. And he was uh, the apostle of, of prayer to India. And many, many times, Praying Hyde would spend 18, 20, 24 hours in prayer. And he would pray and people would be saved. And he would go to where they were having some kind of a outreach or some kind of a crusade of some kind. And he would just pray. And he would pray. And he would pray. And I remember saying, God, I don't even know what that looks like. I remember reading about thinking, I can't, I can't do this. Um, as I continued to grow and pursue the Lord in my walk, I um, tried to learn about prayer because I, I understood it was important. It wasn't just for when I'm in desperate need. Oh, Lord, here I am. I messed up again. I need your help. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. The prayer is also the idea of growing in a relationship with God. That's the primary reason we're supposed to pray. It's how we talk to Him and how He impresses upon us what He what He wants us to know. So prayer is important. It's vitally important. But one thing I've discovered as I've studied scriptures, there's not anywhere a simple little formula that says, okay, do this, this, and this, and you're going to have a great prayer life. You know, you'll be like praying high, man. It'll be awesome. And um, that really, really has struck me down through the years. Um, I remember as a, again, my church in Grand Haven, Michigan that I grew up in, going to Wednesday night prayer meeting and sitting there while some guys would stand up and pray 5, 10, 15 minutes. And, you know, I'm trying to listen and I'm trying to pay attention and, you know, they get about five or six minutes into this thing and I, I don't I have no idea where I was, but I wasn't there. And, and when it got to the point where I thought I'd like to pray, I thought, I can't compete with that. I'm not going to do that. And so, you know, that's the kind of things that were going through my mind. And then I was at um, youth group with a group of people, and, and the leader said, listen, prayer's hard for all of us. Why don't we just get in a circle, and you don't have to say anything fancy in front or behind. But if there's something you want to tell God, just do it in a sentence. And I thought, wow, that's pretty incredible. And so I was able to go ahead and pray for, I think, one of the first times publicly. I remember doing this for a short amount of time, and then we were done with prayer time, but trying to see that happen in other places. And I remember trying it a couple times and having people look at me like I was absolutely crazy. So please understand, when I talk about prayer, it's something that's very real and it's on my my heart and on my mind. Not something I have mastered. I wish I could say... I got this. Let me tell you how. Um, So let me just share again some of my own struggles. Just this week, I went through and just looked at some of the verses on prayer. And I'm just going to say say what they say very quickly. Um, Matthew 6, Jesus basically says, don't pray to be heard. Don't stand on the corners, lifting your hands and praying for other people to see. Matthew 6, again, pray secretly. Spend time by yourself with God. Matthew 6, again, don't repeat the prayer endlessly. He said some people think they're hurt because they say the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over. And I think what he's getting at there is don't say the same thing over and over and over without thinking. It's engaging the thought process when we pray. 
on Luke, pray and don't lose heart. And he puts a connection there between being discouraged and giving up and prayer. He says, you want to not get discouraged and not lose heart? Well, then pray. Um, Luke 22 says, pray that you don't enter into temptation. I'm specific to the disciples, but there's a, certainly an application for us. In Hebrews, it tells us, Hebrews 4, come to God with confidence to receive mercy and grace. And that's just the whole idea of it doesn't matter where you are. The king of the universe says, come, come. James 5 says, if you're hurting and suffering, pray. Now, lots of times and lots of ways that we can pray. And again, I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty. I want to encourage you, if I possibly can, to see the value and the wonder of prayer. To see it as a time of communication with God, not necessarily just a time of asking for what you want. That's not wrong, but that shouldn't be the only reason we pray. So, I came up with just some prayer points that I've tried in my own life that are helpful to me. If they're helpful to you, that's great. Um, one of the first was a prayer is that, that list. Make a, make a prayer list that can be any way you want it to be. I mean, there's fancy ones you can buy. You can buy a little notebook and make just a prayer journal. One of the reasons for that is, and again, not everybody does this, is so that you can keep track. I was praying for so-and-so, and I prayed, and, and then you go back and look at it, and then you see that it was answered, and you put, put a date there. That's one way. Uh, and sometimes you can combine several of these things. Um, pray for the needs you are aware of. We put out a little prayer list. <laughs> That's one of the ways you can see. Take that prayer list out, put it on the fridge. And as you're going by, pick one or two of those and pray for those as you're going to go get a glass of milk or whatever. Pray when you hear someone ask for prayer. And I'm including in this, you're, you're looking at Facebook and someone shares a really hard thing that they've gone through or some other social media. Rather than go, oh, wow, look at this, isn't that incredible? Stop and pray. It doesn't take long. Just stop and pray for him. And, and if you want to, send him a, a message, especially if you can do it privately, saying, hey, I'm, I'm praying for you. Um, use prayer triggers. Let me tell you what I mean by this. I had a friend that was going through some really hard times, and I wanted to pray for him, not just when I woke up or just when I remembered. I wanted to pray for him many times during the day. And so I decided that what I would do is every time I used water, I would stop and pray for him. That was my trigger. So several times through the day, I'd go to him, oh, that's right, I'm praying for Alan. And I would pray for Alan. And it was really cool for me because it gave me the opportunity to just pray a lot for Alan in a time when he needed it. And that might be helpful to you. Pick a trigger and, and do that. Now, another thing that can be an automatic trigger for you, you hear sirens. Many times you go, what's going on? And we're trying to figure it out. Think about saying, I'm going to pray for first responders right now. I'm going to pray for policemen and firemen and others that are working. Not even just the ones that just went by, but in our community. And I just think that's a, that's, it could be a trigger that you plug into your life. Uh, another way, <clears throat> and I have to do this from time to time, someone will say, hey, I'm having surgery on Thursday at 7 in the morning. Would you pray? Well, I like to pray with them before, and I'll tr- I try to do that. 
But I want to pray at 7 o'clock, and so sometimes I'll put it in my phone on a calendar so it goes off 10 minutes before saying, you're supposed to be praying for so-and-so. And that's just a help to me, because I don't, you know, I don't have a great memory sometimes. Um, and then pray for things that happen during the day. Uh, I remember at one point I was, and that can be anything. Something goes on, you can pray for those people, pray for the situation. I walked into a, a store very early in the morning, and the police were there, and they had the owner in handcuffs. And they were very upset that I'd gotten in, so they kicked me out. And and um, the lady knew me, <clears throat> knew that I was a pastor. Went back a few days later, said, everything okay? Yeah, she said, a mistaken identity kind of thing, and they didn't even stop to ask. They just put me in cuffs. And and she said, well, I saw that you came in, and, and the, the, the young lady that works with me said, I bet you he was praying for you. And it hit me. I hadn't. What was I going to say? I mean, it wasn't like she was coming to the church or anything, but the reality is, that's a great response for a Christian. There's a troubled situation here. Lord, help them. That's all you have to do. And that was just such a, such, it just struck me uh, so much in that thing. So anyway, there's some thoughts on prayer, hopefully, that will help you and encourage you. So Israel's first king, First uh, Samuel 13, 1. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 42 years. That one caught me by surprise, and I've studied this before. I mean, you read through 1 Samuel, you're thinking, oh, man, well, maybe 15, 20 years? I don't know. 42 years he served as king. How much of that time he was a good king, and how much of it was he was a just downright wicked king, we don't have that dividing line to know. Um, 1447 tells us that Saul secured the land, and he fought against everybody, and wherever he turned, he was victorious. So there was time frame when he was doing what God called him to do. He was a brave warrior for many years. But what Israel needed was a long-term king who loved and served and honored God and who could lead the nation in worship and war when necessary. That's what they needed, and they didn't get that from Saul. Um, I'm just going to take us through the last event of Saul as a king quickly in chapter 15. So Saul and Samuel meet, and um, Saul, Samuel says, Hey, I've got a message from the Lord. And essentially in, in chapter 15, the first three verses, what he's saying to him is, We're going to pay, you know, we're going to place judgment on Amalek for what they did to Israel. This is God saying, to Saul, we're bringing judgment against them. The judgment was nothing human or animal was to be left alive. This was God's judgment on the Amalekites. No plunder of any kind was to be taken. So verse 9, Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best of the sheep, the goats, the cattle, the fat calves, and the lambs. Look at what it says. Everything, in fact, that appealed to them, they kept. They destroyed only that which was worthless and poor quality. So the, the statement from God was, judgment is coming. You are my hand in judging the Amalekites. Everything destroyed. Don't touch anything. Just everything's gone. The sense was to blot them out of existence with them and all of their stuff so that that nation would no longer exist. 
That was God's judgment. And so Saul was supposed to do that. Verse 10, the Lord said to Samuel, I'm sorry that I ever made Saul king. He has not been loyal to me, and he's refused to obey my commands. And Samuel was deeply moved when he heard this and cried to the Lord all night. So you've got Samuel who legitimately wanted Saul to make it, wanted Saul to be a godly king, let try to encourage Saul, and it just didn't happen. Verse 13, when Samuel found him, looking for Saul. Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. (laughs) And you've got to stop and say, what is going on with you? How could you possibly say that? And and, uh, Samuel's answer, then what is this bleeding of sheep? How come I'm hearing cattle? You said you obey the Lord's command, but... I'm hearing animals. Um, Verse 19. This is Samuel. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? Why did you do this? And he says, I did obey. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag and we destroyed everyone else. My troops brought the best of the sheep, goats, and the plunder to sacrifice to God. That's what we did. We kept all the good stuff to bring it and sacrifice it to God. And that's where Samuel shares those thoughts that are well known. He says, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices or your obedience? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission or listening is better than offering the fat of rams. Rebellion is sin, is as sinful as witchcraft. And by that he means the occult and divination um, and stubbornness, defiance, as bad as worshiping idols. And here's the statement. So because you have rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you. I've chosen, put him in a place of power, encouraged him to do the, the things that God wanted him to do as a king, and now he's out of chance, and he, 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 um, he rejected Saul. And his excuse is, I'm afraid of the people. I was afraid of the people. I, you know, and then he says to Elijah, you know, forgive, forgive and come back so that I can worship the Lord. On one level, what he's saying is, don't make me look bad, Samuel. Come back. I can't worship God without you at my side, so, so come back. And Samuel refuses. Verse 27, Samuel turned to go. Saul tried to hold him back and tore the hem of his robe. And Samuel turned to him and said, guess what? Just like you tore my robe, God has torn the country away from you. That's the symbol of what you just did. Now, Ezra continued to recognize him as king for another 15 years, but at that point, actually not too long after this actual scene, Samuel anoints David as king, and he's the king in waiting. God chose Saul to be Israel's first king um, a good part of the time. He was good part of the time, but he didn't obey God, and he was always making excuses. 
Oh yeah, it was the people. I was scared of the people. So, Samuel 15, these are things we see. God regretted that he made Saul king. God rejected Saul completely. God tore the kingdom away from him. Samuel grieved over Saul and never saw him again. Now it doesn't end there, and we'll talk about next week, we'll talk a little bit about um, some of the things in in the kind of coming together of David and Saul. Um, Eventually Saul ends up just trying to kill David, and that doesn't go well either. Look at 1 Samuel 15, 24 and 25. Saul admitted to Samuel, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's commands. For I was afraid of the people and did what they demanded. But now, please forgive my sin and come back with me to worship the Lord. And this is where I think basically he was saying, don't make me look bad. I can't go back by myself and, and do these things. I mean, you're the one that, that you know, leads this worship time. And, and Samuel just walked away. And so one of the things that struck me is how dangerous it is to give in to peer pressure or uh, the, the flow of the crowd, whatever that is. Um, he was king. He was supposed to say, uh, no, God said no. God said no, we're not taking that stuff. He didn't. Second thing that struck me here is confession of sin and asking forgiveness does not remove the consequences sometimes. He said, forgive my sin. Forgive my sin. You know, know, forgive me, I was wrong. And the reality is, yeah, he was. But there was no restoration of him as king. And there was no restoration of his relationship with light, with Samuel either. And so that, again, confession of sin forgives us, absolutely. Sometimes, depending on what's been done, there are consequences to bear. You know? When I was in high school, I got a lot of speeding tickets, and I confessed the fact that I got the speeding tickets. And I had sin that I'd broken the law and all the rest. It didn't change the ticket price one bit. I still had to pay the ticket. That's the consequences of the sin. What's the takeaway here? Just a, I'm going to try to do this with each, each of the kings that we look at. Just some lessons from the life. Saul's life is a warning and a reminder to us of several things. One, God opposes dishonesty and a lack of integrity. I mean, I obeyed the Lord. No, you didn't. You, you did not obey the Lord. God hates pride and jealousy. We see that further as... As he starts chasing David, why? Because he's jealous. David is being idolized by many people for being a man of God and for, uh, you know, he was killing the thousands of Philistines. God wants obedience from the heart. He wants us to obey from the heart. Not merely going through the motions. On one level, what God was saying to Saul Your sacrifices are worthless because I don't have your heart. You're not coming to me from a heart of devotion and worship and offering a sacrifice saying, God, I offer this to you. That's not what you're doing. You're offering a sacrifice to kind of maybe cover over what you've done. 
The next one, we do not have to give in to fear or impulsive behavior. Saul's life is, is he just keep looking at it, and he keeps giving into this and giving into that, and, and, and um, very, very impulsive. And that's something that we don't have to do. Saul could have obeyed. He could have stood tall and said to his men, put that stuff down, we're not taking any of these things. God said no. But he didn't. God is not looking for rituals and rules. He wants our hearts. Nothing wrong with doing certain things in certain ways. That's not the point. The point is, if I do something, and it's some kind of a spiritual discipline or ritual for me, but I'm just doing it because I do it, not because I'm seeking God as a result, then it's just something that's empty. And God doesn't looking for rituals and rules. He's looking for hearts that are devoted to Him and seeking to love and honor Him. The next one, we learn. Obedience involves sacrifice. There's always a cost to obedience. But on the other side of that, there's that sense of, okay, God, this has been really hard. I know that this is what you expected, and I just... I want to dedicate it to you. This obedience is, is, I want to do it for you. And there's, sometimes there's a real sense of relief as we do something really hard. And it's a step of obedience that we just, we knew we had to, but it was hard. When we do, it's one of those things where we go, okay, I did what God wanted. And then God can use our weakness if we bring our weakness to him. So, so let's say Saul's weakness was that he was scared of his people. That's fine. Take it to the Lord. Lord, I'm scared. If I tell them that they can't do this, they're going to get mad. That's okay. Do it anyway. I'll, I'll stand with you, Saul. I'm your God. So whatever our weakness is, it should remind us that God's not weak. And that God can give us the strength and the help to face or to do whatever he's called us. But may we learn to come to God with all of our doubts and fears. May we seek Him and His strength and our weakness. And may we learn to obey first and to offer our service and sacrifice to Him. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You for Your Word and thank You for the power of Your Word. We thank You for the fact that You've given us real-life examples and that we can learn many things from the lives of those that have lived before. So I pray that you take these truths and help us to think them through and help us to learn. We ask it in your name.